He's an 18-year-old man who's studying to be a commercial airline pilot. He has an unquenchable thirst for knowledge. And that's where this show comes in. This is Wanna Coffee Talk? Aris Martinez is focused on understanding the world around him. So he's grabbing a cup of coffee and sitting down to talk to the experts and professionals about what makes them tick. Everybody sits back, has some coffee, and the conversation gets real. It's real. This is Wanna Coffee Talk, and this is your host, Aris Martinez. Hey, Warren. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Just doing great. Thank you. Thank you for coming with us and talking with me, actually. So for everyone who's listening, Warren Rosenblum is a history, politics and international relations professor at Webster's University. He studied his Bachelor of Arts in Cornell's University in 1988, his PhD in the University of Michigan in 1999. And since then, Nazi Germany, imperialism and modern Europe's history has made him a real expert in these fields. He is the author of Beyond the Prussian Gates, Punishment and Welfare in Germany, 1850-1933, which won the Baker Barton Prize of the Southern Historical Association. He has also published essays on the history of disability, eugenics and euthanasia, and anti-Semitism in modern Europe. But today, we're here to chat about a different side of his research. This includes what happened under the Nazis and how sterilization and euthanasia was handled as a topic in other countries some time ago. We'll be going back in time to the beginnings of euthanasia and eugenics. Unfortunately though, time is limited and we won't be able to cover every single area of Warren's expertise, which believe me, is really broad. So alright Warren, let me get this straight. Your field of expertise is something that I'm just, is way out of my depth. And I really want you to end and I, would, I really want to end this chat with a sense of having learned a lot. So how you can help us with that? And why don't we start with some history? How back in time does euthanasia go? How has the concept shift over time? Well, that's a great question. And um, it really immediately drives us right into the heart of controversy uh, because there's really nothing about the topic of euthanasia that isn't controversial. And that includes the very um, word euthanasia and its and its history. Um, so it's important to stress from the very beginning that uh, euthanasia is a concept that was invented in uh, the modern era. It's a word that um, a, uh, a theorist invented, which which comes from the Greek for a happy death. And right. There, you see that um, this poses all sorts of questions. You know, what, is it, what does it mean to have a happy death? What are we describing when we say euthanasia? And, and your question, which is an excellent question, you know, where, how far back does euthanasia go? When does euthanasia begin? Well, that very question is tied up with the meaning of, of, of the word itself, because are we, are we going to say euthanasia has existed um, back in ancient times? when um, a warrior would uh, insist that a fellow warrior finish him off because he fought in battle and he was severely injured and he knew he wouldn't survive. And so he asks his fellow uh, soldier to take his sword and stick it through his heart. You know, I mean, that's sort of a classic um, image of somebody choosing to die, right? 
And in that sense, I guess, you know, we can only speculate and say that that, if that's the definition of euthanasia, then, you know, on some level, it's probably existed forever. But when people began talking about this idea of euthanasia in the 19th century, and then especially in the 20th century, they weren't just talking about, you know, the injured soldier asking his, you know, comrade to finish him off. They were also talking about things like um, leaving babies to die because one thought, oh, this baby is terminally ill. This baby is never going to be capable of living on its own. And there are all sorts of assumptions then that are made about what constitutes a good life and therefore what would constitute euthanasia, again, an invented word meaning happy death. What would constitute a happy death? And if that's what we mean by euthanasia, if we mean all of these examples in which people were killed, or as they would, as the euthanasia supporters would have called it, when they were quote unquote allowed to die, if that's what we mean by euthanasia, then the history is really hard to fix. Because you'll, you know, if you look it up, if you start Googling online, you'll see all sorts of things about how, you know, infant killings of that nature existed in all sorts of societies going way back in time. There's all the legends of the Spartans, you know, leaving sick babies to die on a hillside and so forth. But the truth is, we really, we really don't know. You, you, you can't, um, it's hard to separate myth from reality when it comes to all those sorts of things. So I would really stress that, you know, the way we're using the term euthanasia, this invented concept of a happy death, which is linked to the notion that there are lives that are not worth living. That's a really key phrase for the euthanasia advocates in modern times, lives not worth living. Um, that is a very modern notion, which is to say it really comes in the 19th century and especially in the late 19th century. And it came from people who had all sorts of assumptions about what a good life was and what the alternatives were in terms of, you know, the meaning of death and that there could be such a thing as a happy death, which, you know, obviously for other people is a, is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. There can be no happy death. There's just simply no such thing, right? So that tension is, is there as soon as we look at the topic of euthanasia, as soon as we try to go back in time and say, you know, when does this start? But the, the quick and easy answer I can give you is that the modern concept of this happy death and the modern advocacy for allowing people to die is really a creation of the late 19th century and particularly of a time in which People thought they were getting beyond Christian morality. They were kind of leaving Christian morality behind and that they were embracing a more scientific view of the world and a more kind of tough-minded view of what's best for society. And that would be kind of the real origins of the concept. Great. Thank you for that really clarifying answer, Warren, because, yeah, I completely agree with what you said. It's really difficult um, noting, like, try to answer when is life worth living or not because you know everyone is a moral dilemma an ethical dilemma which we can't address directly and uh, if we go back in time again from our own research please do correct me if i'm mistaken i found that action t4 was the name that nazis gave to the secret mercy killing mercy killing program yeah, yeah. this ties in nicely with the term eugenics 
and firstly coined in 1883 by Francis Galton, who based his concept in the well-known Charles Darwin. But how has Nazi Germany shaped the way we understand eugenics? And furthermore, how deep can we go when evaluating the impact Nazi Germany has had in extermination programs? Yeah, well, so let me let me back up again. So you mentioned Francis Galton, who is thought of as the, the creator of eugenics. Um, so Galton is an excellent example of somebody who said, hey, we need to get beyond Christian morality. We need to get beyond this notion that every life is sacred. And the reason Galton thought that was important is because he, uh, he understood biology to mean that there's going to be a contest for survival of the fittest in every society. And that if you preserve the lives of weak people, of people who are mentally and physically damaged, if you artificially preserve their lives and allow them to survive when, when normally they would lose in the, in the contest among the you know, survival of the fittest, then the race overall is going to become weaker. Whether that race is the English race or the white race or the Christian race, however you define it, the race is going to become weaker. People, the nation is going to become weaker if you allow these um, mentally and physically inferior elements to survive where in nature they would not have survived. And that's kind of the essence of Francis Galton's belief in eugenics. He thought that um, one of the roles for the nation state was to promote the health of the race. And you would do this by encouraging healthy people to have more babies and stopping the so-called inferior elements by whatever means possible, discouraging them or quite literally taking away their right and their ability to reproduce. And that's really the essence of eugenics is managing the racial health of the nation. Francis Galton was an Englishman. The idea became very, very popular in Great Britain. It also became enormously popular in the United States. But it is only in Germany that a state power came to be that was truly and firmly dedicated to a eugenics policy as, as the very core of its being. And that was the German state under Adolf Hitler. So the reason that Hitler looms so large, kind of getting more directly to your question, is that um, while a lot of other people talked about a eugenics policy, and while there were plenty of experiments with eugenics, in the case of the United States, we're a federal system where there's um, today there are 50 different states and these states all run their own um, social policies. And in the case of the United States, there were, um, I think, uh, something like 17 states that implemented aspects of a eugenics policy. Um, but Germany is the only country where the, the federal government, the, the empire, as they called it, the Reich, took charge of eugenics and really implemented it as much as they could across the board for the entire nation of Germany. And that meant both um, encouraging so-called racially healthy people to have babies. They um, tried to get women to uh, drop out of the workplace, to stop getting university educations, and to have more babies if they were healthy women. They encouraged uh, couples to have more babies 
as long as they were a healthy couple, as long as they were not a Jewish couple, they were a good Christian couple, then they would give them uh, what they called a marriage loan. And um, this was a significant amount of money. And when they had a first child, part of that loan was forgiven. When they had a second child, another big chunk of the loan was forgiven. And if they had four children, I think it was four children, then the entire marriage loan would be forgiven. So that was an example of positive eugenics because it was encouraging people to have more babies as long as they were considered racially healthy. But the flip side of that for the Nazis, the flip side of encouraging healthy people to have more babies was to discourage or stop the supposedly unhealthy elements from reproducing at all. And that's where euthanasia came in. Um, they uh, eventually implemented um, a program of mass murder of those who were racially inferior. Um, most importantly, people with uh, mental, but also physical disabilities. Um, they also implemented a, a giant program of sterilization in which 400,000 or more Germans were forcibly sterilized, therefore prevented from having babies going into the future. And, um, you know, it's even possible to make the connection, although it's an indirect connection, between this policy and then the policy of murdering Jews in the Holocaust, because as with the killing of the disabled, the killing of the Jews was thought as being something that would, you know, purify the race, which would guarantee the health and the vigor and the, 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 the purity of the German race going forward. So we talk a lot about the Nazis because they went farther than any other country, and they are really the ones who took these ideas, these eugenic ideas that were out there in Great Britain, in the United States, and plenty of other countries, and they implemented them on a nationwide scale. It's pretty interesting what you just said, because um, we'll go into this um, extermination and uh, programs uh, right now, actually, but I just feel like Nazi Germany really took the advantage in so different areas, which, um, as you said, it was like they were the only superpower in that aspect to say, okay, we're going to implement this, as you just said. And, well, yeah, we've said it was mass murder. We also referred to it as euthanasia, but as you said, euthanasia is like kind of voluntary and there's nothing voluntary. It's just like a way of killing people because of their not being healthy. So um, Nazism, as stated by Hitler deputy Rudolf Hess, was applied biology. So this led Nazis to go from forced sterilization to the extermination of disabled people, as you just said. Um, according to the book War Against the Weak, Eugenics and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race by Edwin Black, Nazi racial hygiene and its ultimate manifestation in the Holocaust were imported lock, stock and barrel from the USA. And that, indeed, it was U.S. ruling elites who hatched the idea of creating a master Aryan race by selective breeding and then passed it along to the Nazis. Kind of more specifically, it talks about, and Black argues, that the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Institution of Washington funded much of the American-based movement, both at home and abroad, and, in a way, sat in the driver's seat guiding Nazi racial hygienists along their faithful path. So what can you tell us from this, from your own research? What do you think about his opinion and his way of thinking and approaching how the US could have funded and really taken the lead with the Nazi Germany and programs? 
Yeah, I mean, the short answer to that is that Edmund Black's argument is um, grossly overstated. I mean, it's ridiculously overstated. It, it's, it inflates the role of the United States way beyond what any responsible historian would would argue. Okay, and I don't see Edmund Black as a responsible historian. I mean, he's a he's a journalist. He's somebody who likes to sell books, and um, he wrote an interesting book. And I and you know the book is worth reading because it's interesting. But the argument is way over way over the top. Um, you know, the reality is that uh, sure the United States played a role. Um, as I already said, eugenics uh, started in Great Britain. And it spread to the United States. It was quite popular in the United States. And um, some of the uh, individual states, including the state where I live, Missouri, uh, the state where I grew up, Illinois, um, state of Virginia, the state of Indiana, uh, a lot of American states implemented aspects of a eugenics policy. And first and foremost, that would be um, sterilization. That you know, sterilization happened in the U.S. We even had a Supreme Court case regarding whether sterilization should be allowed. And to the immense disgrace of our system of government, the court went along with the idea that sterilization was okay if the um, victims were considered to be racially inferior. So America has a deplorable record in this regard. It's, it's shameful, it's disgraceful, and it's something that every American should know about. But the idea that the United States was somehow responsible for spawning and furthering this movement in Germany is, is just kind of silly. Um, you can find plenty of homegrown examples in Germany of um, scientists who were embracing eugenics uh, back in the 19th century without any influence of the United States. I mean, they were, they were reading um, Darwin, the, the British biologist, um, founder of the field of evolutionary bi biology. They were reading um, you know, French scientists and uh, they were reading Italians and sure, probably a couple Americans too, but America was not a leading, in those days, America was not the leading nation when it came to biological sciences. Um, Germany had its own uh, really um, progressive universities. It had many of the greatest biologists of the 19th century were German. And these were the people who were theorizing the idea of euthanasia ultimately. And these were the people who really kind of fleshed out what it would mean to have a eugenics policy. In terms of how eugenics spread in Germany in the 20th century, um, yes, there was some influence from American foundations, in particular, the Rockefeller Foundation played a role in funding German institutions. Um, but, you know, that's just one aspect of why eugenics became important in Germany. And there's no question that if Adolf Hitler had not won the election and he basically, you know, he he uh, he. In, in 1932, his party. They didn't win a majority, but they did win the largest number of votes. And he was ultimately tapped to become the prime minister, uh, the chancellor, excuse me, of uh, Germany. And then, of course, seized power and became you know, a total dictator. If it was not for Adolf Hitler. There probably never would have been a eugenics policy of that scale and scope 
in Germany. And so ultimately, you know, if we really want to know how did eugenics succeed in Germany, it's about how did Hitler succeed and where did Hitler's ideas come from? And um, in that regard, the United States of America played little to no role. I mean, you can't blame the United States for Hitler's seizure of power. And you also can't really, um, I mean, there's some influence of America on Hitler's thinking. He was fascinated by cowboys and Indians. He thought it was really great that America had wiped out um, the native populations. And he thought that somehow justified the kind of land grab that he planned for Germany. Um, he was certainly aware of America's uh, disgusting uh, racial policies and racial miscegenation, Jim Crow laws in the United States. And he also, Hitler also used that in some ways as a justification for his racial policies. But, um, but the, you know, those are all just aspects of Hitler's thinking. And it would be absurd to inflate the role of the United States in that way. Um, you know, but all again, you know, none of this in any sense excuses what happened in America. I mean, that's, it's just a different story. What happened in America was, as I said, it was deplorable. It was disgraceful. It's something every American should know about and should feel shame about because we did have sterilization in this country. We did have eugenics policies and we certainly had a lot of eugenic thinkers, but, um, but I think Edmund Black is just completely wrong to say that somehow the United States had this uh, leading role in shaping eugenics policy under the Nazis. All right. So if I kind of understood it correctly, um, Edwin's black argument is just over the top, as you said, but is, it is true that the United States had some influence, but barely influence with, um, with the Nazi Germany programs. Because as you said, it was just about Adolf Hitler's own mindset that really mm -hmm. got, got it to promote the eugenics thinkers. But what I, I think I'm missing, I'm missing one part of the story and it's the United States story. Because I didn't really know about the eugenics in the United States. So I believe that if I knew that part of the story, then I would understand why the Rockefeller Foundation would have funded some movements um, with regards to the Nazi Germany. Could you shed some light um, with regards to what happened in the, in the United States? Well, the United States came out of World War I as the richest country in the world. And, um, you know, the banking center of the world shifted during the course of World War I from London to New York. So the United States was enormously wealthy. And we had a number of uh, nonprofit foundations as well that had been created which engaged in you know, worldwide projects that they considered to be helping to better society. So yeah, you can see the money from the United States playing an important role um, in uh, supporting German universities in general. You know, the University of Heidelberg uh, got a lot of American money. The, um, you know, the reconstruction of Belgium was done with a lot of American money. Uh, France got money too. I mean, there, you know, so, so sure you can look and you can see the importance of American funding in all sorts of areas of European life after World War I. But, um, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, the overall landscape of scientific research in a place like Germany. I mean, again, Germany had spectacularly good universities even before World War I. Germany had the leading universities in the world. I mean, Americans used to come to Germany in order to get PhDs, because this was the place 
to study things like biology and physics and chemistry and so forth. Germany had more Nobel Prize winners than any other country um, in throughout most of the 20th century. So, um, yeah, there was there was money from the Rockefeller Foundation. I guess there was money from current. I think you mentioned the Carnegie Foundation, um, other entities, but that's that's just one aspect of you know the overall uh, landscape of scientific research, and then more importantly, social policy. And the social policy in Germany only has its breakthrough. That is to say, the German government is only truly promoting eugenics with Adolf Hitler's rise to power in 1933. All right. Um, thank you, then, Warren. Um, during the more than 15 emails we've exchanged before getting to actually record this, for me, amazing talk, you proposed one question that I really felt curious about. And the question reads as follows. What is the legacy of the mass murder of children with disabilities? Have we said goodbye to the segregationist measures to guard children with disabilities? Are we getting over the damaging stereotypes and misconceptions of the past? You want to throw that question back at me? Is that? Uh, yeah, true? of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's important for people to realize that the mass murder of children and adults under the Third Reich could never have happened if vast numbers of people with disabilities were not being held in um, confinement. So um, going way back to the middle of the 19th century, Germany was a country which um, was confining large numbers of citizens with uh, mental disabilities in particular, people who um, just simply had trouble learning to read, trouble learning to write, who could not reason um, the same way as their peers, who couldn't learn mathematics, who um, were not considered to be uh, very productive, who weren't good, whether it was working on the farm or working in the factory, they were not considered to be reliable workers. And so starting in the middle of the 19th century, Germany had started to confine children in particular in specialized institutions. Uh, this accelerated as the 19th century wore on. After the 1870s, um, money was put aside to make sure that every province in the state of Prussia could um, confine anybody who had a severe disability. And then by the end of the 19th century, um, the numbers had just exploded and people would be uh, referred by the local welfare office or they'd be referred by their school or they might be referred by the police uh, to um, the institutions and the institutions would send a doctor to examine them. And if the doctor said, yeah, you have a pretty darn severe developmental disability, then they would end up being confined. And so by the time the Nazis come to power, um, tens of thousands of people are sitting in these institutions and, um, some of them are uh, working productively inside the institution. Maybe they're working on the institution's farm. Maybe they're working in a little, a little workshop in the institution. Uh, some of them are getting educated in the institution when they turn 18 or maybe when they turn 21, then they leave and they go back to their communities. Uh, but a lot of people were staying in these institutions for their entire lives. And many of them were pretty bleak places, even before Hitler came to power. 
one of the things that happens under the Nazis is that uh, they make a really big deal of all these supposedly unproductive people living in these institutions across Germany. And that is one of the main drivers of the argument in favor of euthanasia is the fact that so many people have been institutionalized. And if you look at other countries, the numbers really are not as dramatic. I mean, if you look at a country like Spain or a country like Italy, um, relatively few people were institutionalized simply because they were developmentally disabled in 1933. Um, if you look at France, it doesn't, you know, there were more than Italy and Spain, but nothing compared to Germany. And even in the United States and even in England, while a lot of people were confined, uh, the numbers are not quite as striking as in Germany. So Hitler and the other Nazis, they pointed to this large population of people living in institutions, and they said, you know, we can't support this. We are too poor as a country to just simply take care of all these people. And, and they, they said, these people are living in luxury. They're living in these palaces of leisure. They're not really working. They're not productive. And we cannot afford this. This is just too much of a burden on us as a country. And that became an important argument for a euthanasia policy, for a policy of mass murder. Now, they claimed that this wasn't mass murder. They didn't call it murder because they said, well, these people are, their lives are so miserable. They're so depressing. They're so awful that if they could really understand their situation, they themselves would not want to live. Because why would you want to live when your life is so meaningless, so devoid of purpose? And so they used the word euthanasia. They applied that word. They said it would be a happy death for these people living in these institutions if they could just be allowed to die. The Nazis also pointed to a survey that one um, institutional caregiver, a director of an institution, had made of, uh, of parents. And he asked them, you know, if your child were to die while under confinement, would you be okay with that? Um, what, if we, what if your child died and we didn't tell you anything about it? We didn't tell you why, we didn't tell you how, would you be okay with that? And you know, posed this series of questions for the, to the parents of children who were confined in institutions. And to his surprise and his disappointment, a lot of parents in fact did say, I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay if my child simply ceased to exist, as long as I didn't have to confront the cause of death and the reality. And, and to Hitler and to others within his administration, what this seemed to show is that people had become so cut off from their own children. They'd become so alienated from their own children. There was this sense of distance from people with disabilities and the stereotypes and the the, the, the negative views of them had become so extreme that people were basically okay with the idea of allowing them to die as long as you didn't rub their face in it, as long as you didn't say, you know, here's what happened, here's, you know, here's how your, your child was killed, or here's how your uncle or your cousin lost his life. As long as people were not confronted with murder, then they would basically allow it. And so um, in 1939, when the Nazis began a program of mass murder, when they began um, taking people out of these institutions of confinement, 
putting them on buses and taking them to so-called killing centers where they were put in gas chambers where they were asphyxiated and then they were burned in crematoria. Um, when they began doing this, uh, they felt like they couldn't publicize it because if they made it too public, people might get queasy and object and certainly the Catholic church would object. But as long as they kept it sort of under the surface, then even if people suspected that this was going on, they would probably be okay. And so the mass murder of um, what probably amounts to as many as 200,000 people who were killed in the various programs of so-called euthanasia, really mass murder, um, that, that this was able to go forward, even though um, a lot of parents knew that it was happening, or at least had very good reasons to suspect that it was happening, even though the caregivers at the institutions often knew that it was happening. Um, even the churches, to some extent, simply, you know, they, they objected here and there, they raised their objections, they asked for private meetings with Nazi leaders, et cetera, et cetera. But when push came to shove, in the final analysis, even the churches basically went along with these killing programs. So when I asked that question in my email to you about, you know, what is the legacy and have we changed? How much have we changed? You know, part of that question is, have our attitudes changed enough that people would stand up and say, stop, stop this now, if that kind of persecution, discrimination, let alone mass murder, was happening in our own society. And I pose that as a question because I don't know the answer myself. You know, I, I do think we've tried to move away from confinement. We've, um, in, in all the countries of Europe that I know about, there have been programs to try to get people back into the community, to get them out of confinement and living with their families or living at least um, alongside other people, maybe living in small communities uh, that are more integrated into towns and cities. Uh, that seems to be the ethic in Europe. It's certainly the ethic in the United States. Um, and, and that gives me hope, you know, that we've moved away from the conditions that led to mass murder under the Nazis. Um, on the other hand, um, there's still awful discrimination. There's still really intense prejudice. And there are many, many countries in the world, thankfully, for the most part, not in Europe, not in the United States, there are many countries in the world where people are still being confined under, you know, pretty deplorable conditions. So. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, basically what you said, I kind of find the relationship with nowadays euthanasia in a way, because not the confinement, but you know, um, whenever you're terminally ill, you kind of got palliative care and palliative care is just not about treating or trying to cure this, the, the illness, but rather trying to relieve the, the suffering and the, the symptoms. And this really poses a, a difficult question when it comes to um, managing resources. Because again, it, it feels like going back in time with the Nazis in confinement, they were just really poor, as you said, and they couldn't really afford to maintain all of those people. And they had to kill them with the mass murder policy. Well, that was what they said, right? That was a judgment. That was a, I mean, 
who's to say whether we're too poor? What, what are, you know, we could say, oh, we're too poor to house the homeless. We're too poor to feed the hungry. We're too, you know, what does that mean to say that, right? It just says, uh, I, I don't want to feed the hungry. I don't want to <laughs> house the homeless, right? I mean, we're making choices, right? And, and the Nazis in their case made a choice and said, oh, we're too poor to support these people in institutions. But, you know, they weren't too poor. Of course they could support them. I mean, it, that, Germany was a wealthy modern country. So that was just their, you know, that's important to point out. It is, it their, is. Gotcha now. Yeah, I thought, I thought they were really poor with, with, with what you said. But if it was just an excuse, then yeah. there's, there's obviously a downside to that. But for instance... Oh yeah, I mean, look, there's people in the United States today who say we're too poor to um, take care of hungry people and, and we're too poor to have a healthcare system that would, uh, you know, take care of people's medical needs. And, um, but, you know, that's absurd. I mean, obviously we're a very rich country, so we're only too poor in the sense that we don't want to do something and that we feel that it's a burden, but that's, that's a, you know, that's a choice. It is, it is, it is. But for instance, for some countries where um, there may be really poor and getting people with palliative care is not an option, or maybe they can't simply ensure a good palliative care to those people who are terminally ill and which are suffering can be really, then legalizing euthanasia will be like kind of a slippery slope in that, in that aspect, because even the patients themselves may seem like they're a burden to the families or even to the system, which would end, as you said. It's not a mass murder, but a voluntary mass murder. Although I feel like evidence should have been, and more data should have been recollected. We maybe don't have enough knowledge about all of this, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think there's a slippery slope. Uh, you know, I, I mean, as soon as you start saying that some lives are worth more than others, uh, you're in a very dangerous situation. And um, I, I, I think they were able to do that in Germany because people had been separated from their communities for so long. And that led to all these very negative stereotypes and you know, people with disabilities were seen as ugly and they were seen as unpleasant and unhygienic. And um, it just seemed like too big of a problem to deal with. And uh, obviously in our own world, we know that all of that's not true, that people with disabilities can lead incredibly fulfilling lives, that ugliness is a subjective judgment and you only think people are ugly if you haven't been around them and you haven't, you know, you've, you've, those are, those are built-in stereotypes of what constitutes beauty and what constitutes ugliness. And, you know, the question of being hygienic is, you know, I mean, some hygienic is in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean, we, we look at people and we think they're dirty based on, again, a, a subjective judgment. So um, we just, we have to be aware of how easily we slip into these very loaded value judgments about people who are different. And, um, and it's a very slippery slope. As soon as you start making these judgments, um, they, they, they can expand endlessly. Yeah, indeed. And I do have one question, because you, you even said that the Catholic Church with the Nazi Germany kind of went along with the with this mass murder programs, even though they kind of objected sometimes. So then the question is, how did all of this end? You know, how did it reach an end? Well, it only reached an end with the destruction of the Third Reich. Um, there's, a, there's a myth that 
the protests by the Catholic Church succeeded in stopping the euthanasia program. And um, there were protests. There was active um, resistance. And in um, August of 1941, Hitler issued a stop order against what you brought up before, the the so-called T4 program, that he said, we're not going to do this program anymore. We're not going to have the buses come and pick people up and take them to these gas chambers. There's too much resistance to that. All that is true, but um, that didn't stop the killing. That stopped the T4 program. That stopped the, the buses from coming and picking people up and taking them off. But the killing continued. It simply continued in different forms. and. Um, Often people were, I hate to, to be so uh, bleak and make it, you know, this is not a pleasant topic, but people were starved to death in the institutions. People were given um, injections of drugs that basically caused them to die quickly. Um, people were sometimes killed in a, what you call an ad hoc manner, where they, they were gassed to death um, by local uh, authorities without any coordinated overall program. So the T4 program came to an end in August of 1941 on Hitler's order, but the killing continued. And in fact, it continued all the way down to um, the spring of 1945. So even as Russian troops were invading from the East and American troops and French and British troops were invading from the West, uh, the euthanasia program was still going on. People were still being murdered. Uh, There are even examples of people being murdered after the liberation, after Hitler had fallen and Germany was supposedly free of Nazism. Some of these hospitals, some of these asylums were continuing to give lethal injections or, or to allow people to starve to death. So the only thing that brought it all to an end definitively was the, um, the destruction of Nazism and um, a new Germany, which emerged in the second half of the 1940s and 1950s. And um, for years, nobody wanted to talk about what had happened to people with disabilities. Uh, Families themselves were kind of ashamed of the fact that they had disabled uh, family members. Doctors were still practicing their profession and they didn't want to talk about it. The asylums, sure as anything, didn't want to talk about it. Um, And it's only later in the 1950s and then much later in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when historians began digging information up, that then Germany had to confront the fact that they had carried out this horrible um, program. And, uh, and, and today, thankfully, I think people are very aware of it. And it's one of the reasons that I think we recognize the urgency of treating people with disabilities with dignity and respect and um, making sure that they're not living under dehumanized conditions. I could go on and on asking this question, Warren. I just really interesting. And as you said during the interview, some of them should really be known by most of us. And the reality is that we don't know enough about these topics, even though they can be covered at schools and so on. But the reality is we don't talk about this that much. So once again, I would like you to th- I would like to thank you for your um, voice and your opinion and your information knowledge when it comes to these topics. And it's kind of time to wrap up, with, but we've just said, 
I was about to ask, what have we learned from the past and what are the main takeaways? But, you know, you kind of wrapped it up right now, like treating disability, disabled people, sorry, correctly with dignity and with certain, in a certain way that we didn't um, used to do when it comes to Nazi Germany and none of that stuff. So um, is there anything more you would like to add, Warren? Uh, no, I think you really summed it up really nicely, Aris. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Warren. So then we can call it the day for now. And just thank you. And I really appreciate your time and accepting to have a talk with me. It's really great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to today's episode. Hope you really enjoyed the expert talk and really hope you got some insightful and new um, opinions on the topic. I actually did, so that's pretty nice. As always, show notes will be available on our website as soon as possible. And once again, thank you for listening and tuning in.